Well, uh, good evening, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going to read this sermon passage for you tonight. It's uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. You have a Bible, you can flip there or scroll there or whatever you want to do. Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, starting with verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, at Christ the King, J.P. Roxbury, we have been preaching through the book of Jeremiah all fall, and I'm really thankful that Claude asked me to come up this week when I'm actually preaching something that will kind of make sense regardless of the context. You don't have to hear a random message from Jeremiah chapter 9 or something like that. Uh, Today we're talking about uh, what has happened with this nation, Judah. Um, The book of Jeremiah is all about God's prophecy to the southern nation. You know, if you remember your history of the Bible, uh, Israel was this united kingdom under David and Solomon, but following Solomon, it was split in half. The north was Israel, and the south was Judah. And the north got destroyed, and then the south hung around for a while. And Jeremiah is all about these prophecies towards the south, telling them that they are going to get destroyed as well, that judgment will come on them unless they repent. That's what the first half of the book's about. And then we see what happens. Uh, Judah doesn't repent, and here we are in Jeremiah 29, about sometime after 597 B.C., and judgment has come. The people have been conquered by the nation of Babylon. They have been defeated and taken away. Um, the, the strategy for this empire was once they conquered the nation was to take the leaders and drag them to their own city, about 500 miles away. And they have taken the people of Judah and put them in the heart of enemy territory. They put them in the midst of a city where no one shared their faith, where no one shared their values, in the midst of a city whose very name in Scripture is synonymous with evil and wickedness. And at this point, the people of Judah, they're faced with this dilemma. What do we do now? 
How are we going to live our lives now? How are we supposed to live life in this city, in the heart of Babylon? And as distant as all the history stuff might seem, I think this is actually a very important question for us. Um, This is a, a question that has remained a challenge for God's people throughout history. The issue of how are we supposed to be Christians in the city? Christians, of course, are not traditionally known for their love of cities. I, re- I remember uh, another church planner buddy of mine who uh, is in Watertown was telling me a story about heading to some other part of the country to raise some funds, and he went and shared the story of Watertown and its needs, and at the end they asked one of the leaders of the church to, to pray for him. And so this leader came and put his hand and he said, Lord, I thank you for this brother and your call to send him to to those people. Lord, I wouldn't do it. You know I wouldn't do it. But thanks for sending him. <laughs> I think that's, that's about the way uh, we Christians are traditionally uh, thought of as our, our view towards the city. That it's, it's a place for, for those kind of people. <laughs> but the pa- this passage in Jeremiah tells us that Christians are not only called to, to love the city, but that we should be so connected and invested in the city that our fates would be one and the same. That when it prospers, we would prosper. So how does that happen? How does a church uh, exist in the city in that kind of uh, vital and vibrant way? Well, speaking through Jeremiah, I think God gives us some answers to that. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want us to see what, what this passage shows us about the, our approach to the city. The way we should approach the city in general. And then our call to the city what God calls us to do in the city, and then finally, the gospel for the city and and what that means. So let's start with our approach to the city. Um, I've already mentioned this this passage is is rooted in history. There is a dispute that's happening. Um, The people have been taken into exile, and uh, the issue at hand is how are we supposed to live today? And what we just read, what I just read to you, is actually a letter, right? We got this long prologue about who the letter was written to, and how it was delivered. It's a letter that was brought about because there were some false prophets who had been in the midst of this group of exiles, some false prophets living in Babylon, who had said, what you all need to do is just huddle up and, and, and hunker down and wait this thing out. Because in a, in a couple of years, we're going to be back home in Jerusalem. This is just a temporary thing. It's not going to last very long, so just wait. Now, the historical circumstances of all this stuff is unique. But when we look at the different approaches that people are are trying to take to life in Babylon in this passage, I think we actually see some stuff that's very common, uh, even for the way we interact with a city like Somerville or or the greater Boston area. Um, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City. I'm sure you hear enough about him from Claude. But uh, he wrote a book called Center Church. He gave a series of lectures on it. And in that book, uh, he talks about some of the different ways historically that Christians have interacted with the city. And he says one of those ways is, uh, one of the approaches that we take is assimilation. And that was, assimilation was Babylon's plan. I mean, this is why they did this, this whole thing. Uh, If you remember all those crazy names I was listing, you may have heard in between it that some of those people were 
the queen mother, some of them were craftsmen, some of them were priests, some of them were prophets. What Babylon had done was they took the best and the brightest and they took the leaders of this community and they brought them to their own town, 500 miles away. And when you think about it, it's, it's kind of a brilliant strategy. Instead of wiping these people out, instead of destroying them or imprisoning them, they took the best and the brightest and they brought them to their own country and said, here, live here. They put them in a place where there was a new culture, where there was a new language, and they just said, go be free. Do whatever it is that you would do. And their hope in that strategy was that those people would cease to be Israelites and instead become Babylonians. The hope was that they would cease to be distinct, distinct of their own culture, but they would become a part of this new culture. And, I mean, we see that all the time now, right? We see Christians do that every day when they come to a city like Boston. People who come and observe the, the values of this city and they just make those values their own values. And pretty soon you look at their life and compare it to the life of any other person in this city and you, you can't really tell a difference. They're basically the exact same. Christians have been doing that forever. And not just individual Christians, but churches do that as well. There's so many churches in this city where they've run up into these different points of theology or doctrine that are, are countercultural, um, that are not accepted by the, the rest of society, and so they start to, to take those doctrines and, and minimize them and kind of push them aside and eventually dismiss them. And you find that those churches really are difficult to distinguish from any other civic organization in the city. So that's what happens with assimilation. That's one approach we could take. But on the opposite end of the spectrum is this uh, separatist instinct. And that's what's happening with the false prophets. The false prophets were advocating that the people wall themselves off. They were saying essentially, well, we are God's people. We're the holy, chosen people of God. So we need to protect ourselves. We need to wall ourselves off from these evil influences of the outside world. We need to gather up in our little religious ghetto that has been built for us, and we just need to sit here and wait. And I think it's pretty obvious how Christians have done that as well. You know, when, Whenever Christians take the stance that the world around us is evil, that the culture out there is bad, and, and, and we need to, to build our own culture. We need to wall ourselves off and block ourselves off from it. That's when we're, we're doing this separatist thing. Um, when I was younger, I went on a mission trip with a youth organization, and it was back in the day when music was on like physical discs that you put into like a machine to play them. And so I took my pack of CDs, and I took my, my disc man on this trip with me, and, and one day, at the beginning of this trip, they, they I'm going to trip over this, they mentioned that it was wrong, it was a sin, for Christians to listen to non-Christian music, and if you had any, you needed to destroy it immediately, <laughs> and so, of course, I told them I didn't have any, <laughs> um, but that's a, an example of this idea that, that, we would, that many times Christians have said the outside world is bad and we can't expose ourselves to these kind of influences. 
Um, and of course, that can, can ramp itself up into this us versus them mentality where we become antagonistic towards the culture or, or we become fearful of the culture. You know, it, it, in its most extreme forms, it's, it's terrorism and, and triumphalism, it's the Crusades. But uh, in its more weaker forms, it's burning our CDs. And there's a more recent form of this too. Um, and it doesn't totally fit in uh, with these two different views because it's, 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 it's newer than that. It's something that, but I think we need to talk about it in, in Boston especially because it's somewhere in between this assimilationist idea and the separatist idea. Because, you know, the, the assimilation person says, I'm just going to absorb all the values because I like the city. The separatist says, I don't like this anything about the city. I don't want to do anything with it. But there's this other way that people come into Boston now, which I would, you know, I'd call it maybe the consumerist approach or, or the tourist approach. It's people who come in and they say, this isn't my home. This isn't my place. I don't belong here. But I do like stuff here, um, but I'm not going to invest. I'm not going to get too connected here. I'll take in the culture. I'll take in the nightlife. I'll get my degree. I'll advance my career. I'm here to get all the things I need from the city, but it's not getting anything back from me. It's that view that says, this city is my playground, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play until I get tired, and then I'm going to go home. I think that's the kind of ways, those are the main ways that, that people often interact with a place like Boston. Um, the assimilationist who, who dives right in, the separatist who walls themselves off. But I think that's why this is so important for us to, to really look at what Jeremiah is trying to say. Uh, because Jeremiah is giving uh, an instruction that's neither uh, antagonistic or assimilationist. And here's what he says. We just looked at it. He says that we should build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for our sons. He says we need to seek the welfare of the city where, where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. God's calling for Christians is to live in the city as exiles. What does that mean? Well, I actually have a friend who is in exile. That's the kind of thing that happens when you live in a, a city like this. Um, he's in exile. He was uh, high up in the government of a Latin American country. He was advising the president at the time. And then all of a sudden, there was a coup. And the regime in power was overthrown in the middle of the night. And he got a call on the phone that said, your guy is gone, our guy is in, and if you're still around in the morning, we're coming to kill you. And so he booked a flight, and he left town, and he hasn't been back since. But if you talk to him, his allegiance is still to his home country. The place that he loves and longs to be is still back there. But he knows that his life is here, and he has put now decades of work into serving the place where he lives. His primary allegiance, of course, it's, it's to his true country, um, but his life and energy is spent here. Now, I think that idea almost perfectly describes how we are supposed to live as Christians in Boston. As Christians, we belong to God. 
We are citizens of his kingdom. He is the king of our kingdom. He is the one where, who owns the allegiance of our hearts. But this is the place where we live. This is the place where he has put us. And there's no going back home. There's no making it to our true country until we're finally with him in glory. And so this language of exile, this language of being God's people who are spread out, who are taken away from their home country, is actually something that the New Testament writers pick up on. Um, That's why I think this is important for us as Christians to, to relate to the people of Judah. Peter, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. This idea runs throughout Scripture, that as citizens of God's kingdom, we are always supposed to be living as exiles. We're supposed to have our hearts set on that ultimate heavenly kingdom. But notice here also, uh, God says, I have sent you into exile, right? He doesn't say Babylon, right? He doesn't say I'm writing to the exiles that Babylon has made, but he says, these are, it's, I have sent you into exile. God has sent them. And, and then in verse 11, I read, it says, I know the plans I have for you. God's claiming that these people who are far away from home are actually still very much in the midst of God's will for them. That this is exactly where he wants them to be. Now, if you're around a group of Christians for long enough, you're going to hear some people talk about calling. Christians like to talk about the idea of calling and God's calling on my life and what is God calling me to do. And usually, when we're talking about that, what are we talking about? We're talking about our job, talking about the next place we're going to live. We might be talking about... Uh, a person we're dating, and and who we get married to. But uh, Philip Ryken says, this passage here is a reminder that the Lord doesn't just call people to jobs and spouses, but God calls people to cities. And he calls people to churches. I think we can get so distracted, especially uh, the as younger people in a city, uh, we often can get so distracted about what's next, about what's, what's coming next, that, that we forget that God has called us here right now. We forget to look at this, our surroundings and, and remember that God has a purpose for us even right now, that our calling is right now. God put you here today. You are sitting in this church, in this room today for a reason. So the question is, are you going to invest here? Or are you going to huddle up and and hunker down and wait out your time until this season of your life is over? God wants these people to see that it's not an accident of history that God's put them there in Babylon. But it's his will for them. It's his will for their community. And it's his will for that city. And that's how we should approach the city. We should approach the city as exiles. Not as people who are against the culture, not as people who are assimilating to the culture, but as people who are a part of the city, but different from it. So what does that mean? What do we do then? What is our call to the city? 
If we're supposed to be here, how do we live here? Verse 5 gives us some really practical advice. Jeremiah tells the people, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Eugene Peterson, you know, the message translation of the Bible, uh, he, he writes it, he says, make yourself at home. That's his first piece of advice to these exiles. The fundamental challenge that these people were facing was, was their unwillingness to set down some roots. They said, we've only got a couple of years here and then we're going to move on. So there's no reason to invest. That mindset that I've only got a couple of years here and then I'm going to move on, I think is the most devastating thing that can happen in the city. I live just a couple of blocks away from a youth center, uh, and one of my friends runs uh, this center for at-risk youth. He used to be gang-involved in his teenage years and was incarcerated, and he came back with this great vision to serve our community. And so I was asking him, what can I do? What can our church do? How can we be more involved in this community. And you know what he said in response? He said, the number one thing that this city needs, the number one thing that the kids in this community need is consistency. There's so many people here that have, uh, are, are so transient uh, that, that maybe will commit at the beginning and not follow through that the most powerful thing that you can do in this community is just be here. Just be present. Be around. The call to build and plant is a call to view this city as a destination and not a detour. Uh, Philip Ryken was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which is a really big, well-established congregation. And when he was preaching this to his people, he said that this is also a place where we need to challenge ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to pray that God might give us a lifetime call to this city? That God might give you a lifetime call to be here at Redeemer Church, to be a part not just of the foundation, but of the construction of the life of this congregation. Now, maybe some of you here are already lifelong Bostonians. Maybe you've already lived in Somerville your whole life. And maybe you're starting to feel a little righteous right now. (laughs) But I want to say to you, just because you have been here forever doesn't mean you're necessarily being obedient to this call. Because in addition to the call to build and to plant is the call to plant gardens and eat their produce. It's this call to cultivate, to develop. It's a call to make this city a better place. That's what he's calling them to do. And then he goes on and he says, we should marry. He says, increase here and do not decrease, right? He says, marry. He says, have children. God calls the Israelites living in Babylon to make more Israelites who are living in Babylon. He tells them to build families of believers and have children, and raise them up in the faith, in the midst of this foreign city. Um, You all are pretty young, it looks like, for the most part. I don't know how many kids are down in the kids' room right now, but I'm sure if we give it a couple of years, there's probably going to be some more down there. Uh, Young church plants in the city tend to be pretty effective at growing in this way. (laughs) 
But the question that I think we always need to be challenged with is, yeah, we we, we might have some young children, but where are we going to raise these families? There is a great need for Christian families to be in this city. And I know it's really hard. If you're not from here, I know it's hard to stay in the city. If you come from some other part of the country where you have a a vision of a a green grass and a picket fence (laughs) or rent that is is somewhat affordable, (laughs) maybe a well-funded public school system, it can be hard to stay here. But raising a, a family in the city is honestly one of the most impactful things that you can do here. It is one of the the greatest ways that we can share the gospel of the kingdom is by staying here and believing in Christ as we raise our families. But then finally, uh, he comes to the end of these instructions and he summarizes it all. He says, in addition to build and plant and marry, he says, the thing that sums up all of those instructions is this. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Some translations say, seek the peace of the city. The meaning there is that we should seek what the Bible calls the shalom of the city. The shalom of the city is a really amazing word. I'm not sure if Claude's talked about it at other times. It's it's a big idea in scripture, and it's an idea that is bigger than peace. It's an idea that's bigger than welfare. Shalom is about total human flourishing. It's about the world, the way that it was meant to be. And that means when Jeremiah is calling people to seek the peace of the city, when he's calling us to seek the shalom of the city, he's first calling us to do the little things. He's calling us to shovel our neighbor's sidewalk. He's calling us to vote in elections. I'm pretty sure there's an election on Tuesday. Did you guys know that? There's one in my neighborhood. I don't know about Summerfell, but I assume it's all, all over. Um, he's calling us to meet our neighbors and to have them over for dinner. He's calling us to do what, what Jesus told us to do, to love our neighbors and, and not just the ones that we have the most in common with. He's calling us to do the small things. And he's also calling us to do the big things. He's calling us to care about the things that God cares about. When he says seek the peace of the city, God is telling us that we need to be people who fight against injustice. We need to be people who are working for equality for all people. We need to work for social justice. We need to fight against racism. And we need to care for the poor. This is a call for us to do anything and everything that furthers the public good. And I think as I talk about this, we actually are hitting on one of the greatest strengths of our culture right now. Because, let's be honest, as I'm telling you to to love your neighbors, I'm not saying anything remotely uh, countercultural. Everyone hears that and they say, of course. Yeah, of course we should do that. Everyone should do that. Everyone in the city should do that. But here's the thing. When I think about that that concept of us serving and seeking the peace and and how everybody's fighting for that same thing, regardless of of where they're coming from, I'm reminded of this place in my neighborhood that's called the Peace Garden. And the Peace Garden is just a couple blocks from my house. Um, And it is a a small 
small section of land, maybe about half the size of this room. And it's a memorial to people who've been killed in violence. And every time someone is, is killed in our community, they, they write their name on a brick, and they put the brick in the ground, and then everybody comes out, and we have a little ceremony, we hold hands, and we talk about how bad it is, and how we long for peace. There's a little mural that says, Peace Garden. And if you go there, even right now, I guarantee this is what it's like. If you go there, you'll notice at the very first moment that the Peace Garden, the last way you would describe it, is peaceful. It is on the corner of two extremely busy streets. And despite our constant efforts to clean it up, it frequently is covered in garbage. And despite the great work of of our community to patrol it and watch over it, there's a lot of crime that happens in the Peace Garden. And every time I stand there, I can't help but think that this is exactly what peace looks like apart from Christ. It's always a hollow, an empty shell of something that we're deeply longing for. You see, the real definition of shalom is not simply total human flourishing, but it's total human flourishing with God at the center. That's what shalom is. That's the picture of the way it's supposed to be. It's the picture of the heavenly city that comes down at the end of Revelation where God stands in the middle and there's no need for light anymore and all the tears are wiped away from our eyes. That's shalom. That's God's command to these people. He's calling them to build that heavenly city in the midst of Babylon, this earthly city. And that's our call as well. That's God's call for us to the city. To build, to plant, to marry, to bring the works of God to this community. But not just bring the works of God, but God himself. The good news of Jesus Christ to bring that to this community. And that brings me to the last thing, but the most radical part of this message. And that is the gospel for the city. If you could put yourself in the shoes of the original audience here, what would it have been like to receive this letter? What would it have been like to hear someone read, thus says the Lord, seek the shalom of God in Babylon. Pray for the redemption of the most wicked place on earth. How could that be? This is such an impressive passage in Scripture. Do you know that this is the first place in all of the Bible where God explicitly tells his people to pray for their enemies? This is it. This is the first place. Can you imagine? I mean, these are the people who had destroyed Jerusalem. They had plundered and pillaged. Many of these people had watched their friends and family members die on the 500-mile road from exile. The Babylonians were God's enemies. This was the definition of God's enemies, Babylon. How could God possibly want their welfare? And I think in that way, this passage is a glimpse into the very heart of God. This 
instruction shows us one of the deepest realities of the gospel. God cares about sinners. The whole story of Scripture is the story of a God who is seeking to save a people who hate Him. Who is coming after a people who want nothing to do with Him. And the ultimate example of this is what we see in the Gospel. The ultimate example of this, Paul says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, He reconciled us to Himself. If you're a Christian in this room, I hope you're identifying with these exiles. I've been talking about it, saying we should. We should be thinking of ourselves as exiles. But the truth is, by nature, we are much more like the people of Babylon. We, Scripture tells us, are the enemies of God. We want nothing to do with Him. We don't belong to Him by nature. We are separated from Him by our sin. And do you know what God's solution was to this problem? Do you know what God's solution was to the problem that He loves sinners and, and wants to be with them, but they want nothing to do with Him? His plan was to move in with us. His plan was to put on flesh and dwell among us. And not only to live a life generally for the benefit of, of our community, but it says that he literally lived a perfect life as our substitute. Jesus Christ came and he lived a life in our place. And on the cross, he bore the weight of our sin. On the cross, he bore the weight of our rejection and running from God. Here's what Paul says. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so, when God here speaks through Jeremiah, when he says, seek the welfare of the city, that is a command that is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. That's, that's the gospel. Jesus lived among us and he brought shalom. He reconciled all things back the way they were supposed to be. He literally brought a life where everything was right and God was at the center. And that message, that gospel message, is our only hope. If we ever want to see any kind of transformation or change here in this city. Because I've already said it. The reality is, life here is hard. If you've lived here all your life, life here is hard because you can invest all your time and energy, but this city changes so rapidly that it can be erased in a moment. Whether you've been here forever or you just got here, you know that life here is hard because the pressure is high. There are more comfortable places to be. There are certainly cheaper places to be. And me simply telling you that God says you should invest, that God says that you should build and plant and, and marry and seek the peace, 
That's not going to change you. That's not going to even keep you here. It's certainly not going to keep you here when somebody calls and offers you a six-figure job in Ohio or even a $800 a month apartment in Brockton. <laughs> the only thing that is going to, to move us to truly seek the shalom of the city is to see Jesus. To see how little we deserved his grace. How much we deserved to be abandoned and left behind. For God to wipe his hands of us and just say, I'm done with you. To see our sin and then to see him and realize what God has actually given us instead. That he has given us his very life. Only when you realize how Christ has come and given his life as a ransom for you, will you ever go and give your life as a ransom for others? And so there's one last little thing that I want to mention. I'm done here in two seconds. But i got to answer this practical question because we've been talking about big picture stuff. Peace and shalom and perfection. And the question that might be on your mind is where do you start with this stuff? How do you get started? Well, there's one word in here that I've been overlooking, um, but I think it's the key answer to that question. He says, seek the peace of the city and pray on its behalf. Pray. If we want shalom, if we want this picture of absolute human thriving with God at the center, the place we need to start is in prayer. The place we need to go is, we need to go to God and ask Him to do this thing that is literally impossible without Him. I'm not sure how you all get together to pray here at Redeemer, but I hope that you will pray together as a congregation. And I hope that each and every one of you will, will get on your knees and pray before the Lord in your daily life and ask Him to come and do this. Ask Him and come, to come and mold your heart to be more like His. Because what this passage assures us is that as this city thrives, well, let me just put it this way. The fate of Somerville is the fate of this church. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exiles and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Lord, this is challenging stuff for us. But Father, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be reminded that you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't first done for us a thousand times over. Lord, I, I'm particularly sensitive this morning because I know there are many transient people, uh, many people who will not be here for long, um, who maybe already have the next steps of their lives planned out and, and you have clearly called them there. But Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would take this word seriously, Lord, that we would believe that you have placed us here today for a reason. And Lord, that there are neighbors around us who live next door to us who don't know you. And Lord, I pray that, that you would not let us forget about this and move on. I pray, Father, you would show us the great lengths that you have gone to to redeem us, that you did not commute from heaven, but you came 
and you lived, and you died for us. I ask, Father, that that message would change us by the power of your grace and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.